Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Arts. Welcome to Talk Arts. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling international and interconnected. Oh, wow. And I think I've used that word before on the show, interconnected. But it's a good one for arts because the thing I love about art and visual arts, but also all kinds of arts, like whether it be architecture or music or anything creative, is that it brings people together. And I think one of the most important things is to remind each other of our humanity and the way that even if you're from a different country, from a different town, from a different area or even a different religion or anything like that, actually we are all the same. We're all humans and we all love and sometimes hate and uh, (laughs) hopefully we all will help other people to make the world a better place. And today we are going to be discussing the work of the British Council. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny because when we first started collecting, when I first started hanging out with you, I used to use the British Council website as a resource to sort of learn about art. And um, they have an amazing art collection. And I used to love Googling things because you would often find quite obscure works that I hadn't seen before by certain artists. Oh, yeah. And it was a nice way of kind of uh, learning about the different types of work that artists made. And I first became really aware of the British Council thanks to the Venice Biennale because our mutual friend Tracy was representing Britain in 2007. And at the time... Andrea Rose was there and she she was really brilliant. And I remember talking to her all about the work that the British Council did to promote the arts internationally. And it was brilliant to think about how you can promote the creative industries all over the world. And in doing so, it kind of shows the talents and the the kind of initiative that so many creative people have in the UK. And I sometimes feel like politically, particularly, The arts are often like underfunded or undersupported, but actually our artists, even yourself, if you think about you as an actor, like the work our artists do really do change the world and can also bring in huge amounts of money and revenue Mm. and and interest. You can be ambassadors for your country. Exactly, exactly. And in December 2020, our guest today joined the British Council as the new director of arts. And I'm very excited to have him on the show because I think the work that he's been doing for the past uh, few decades has been so impactful, especially in terms of inclusion and diversity and kind of bringing together different groups of people from different backgrounds and highlighting different causes. So I'm very proud and excited to welcome to Talk Art, Skinder Handel. Hi, Skinder. Hey, Robert Russell. Hi. (laughs) How are you doing? Really excited to be here. 
Brilliant. With you guys in this really cool studio. <laughs> it is cool, isn't it? Very nice. Because <laughs> we're currently at Spiritland in uh, in the new King's Cross, which always feels a bit futuristic to me. I was walking around this morning and it's quite surreal. I don't know, there's waterfalls outside the central St. Martins. What are they called? Like Oh, fountains. Fountains, yes. yeah. It's all quite intense. It's intense. <laughs> <laughs> Where have you come from today, Skinder? Well, I've been travelling from Birmingham, from King's Heath, actually. Right. So when you work for the British Council, is there like an office you have to regularly be seen at? It's always good to be seen yeah. with the team. So we have a, an office in the Olympic Park, yep. so um, next to the stadium which is now owned by West Ham, I think. Yeah. And yeah, so we're based there. So I, I'm usually in London two to three times a week. I'm here five days this week, but normally two to three days and a lot of the time traveling here and there and everywhere, it seems. For me, any space where you travel and hear the sound of the road or the rail helps me relax and think, actually, and spend time away from phone calls being on Zoom, Teams, and all of that, and you can read, or you can just yeah. um, have conversations with yourself in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I look forward to a long train journey because I like to read as well. But I, I'm always the phone's always on though. So yeah. you, you turn the phone off when you're on these things, or no, definitely not. Definitely, that yeah. phone is on. It feels twenty four seven. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. you become a slave to it. Um, that's a worrying sign. Yeah. yeah. So have you have you listened to any talk arts? <laughs> I have, yes. Ooh, so that? someone from the British Council who's like director of the British Council listens to talk about that's a pretty, uh, that's, that's kudos <laughs> for us. Not at all. Uh, it's kudos that, you know, um, that I'm here in your studio um, with two fellas who champion and love art. And I think that's, for me, really special. And listening, uh, the last the last programme I listened to properly, because, you know, I'm always travelling. So so you, you sometimes you tune into the podcast and, you know, I need to be a bit more organised and tuning in more regularly. But it was the one when you when you were talking to the jury of the Turner Prize. Mm. Oh, yeah. You were on it, mm -hmm. of course. And mm -hmm. I think we met briefly um, in Coventry at the Herbert Gallery. Oh, right, yeah. But it was like really fleeting yeah. sort of exchange. And I spent most of my time drinking stout with the winners. Um, that oh, was, in the bar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that and was the wonderful. Yeah, yeah, the Shabin. Yes, with the Array Collective. Yeah, yeah, they were brilliant, weren't they? Brilliant. Yeah, that was an amazing oh, so experience. Well, I actually first heard about you and the work mm. you do from a mate of mine called Caroline Meeby, and I used to hang out with her in the late nineties, early two thousands. And she's been at the British Council for a number of years now. And it sounds like since you've joined, she's really loving working with you. And she told me about the great vision you have. Um, so you joined at the end of December twenty twenty, which is obviously like in the pandemic. So it must have been quite a challenging time and can you speak a bit about your kind of experience in the past year and a half like being in the British Council? Yes I mean it's been an exciting roller coaster shift um, I mean I've come from a space which is you know the kind of dynamic periphery of invention um, and it moves at pace and here I am in a big institution right now mm. trying to grapple with that shift and that grapple with that shift is always a constant in a sense, a challenge and, and an enjoyable challenge. And Caroline, who you mentioned, has been great. So when I started during the, the lockdown, we would have a Friday night drink on Teams. <laughs> oh, really? Um, to, to help me settle in and think. And she'd introduced me to various team members who were doing great things across the world. And so the first six months was very much in a bedroom 
on a lot of meetings. I've never been in so many organised meetings. Mm. There's a meeting every hour with a with less than a minute break. Wow! So you're constantly um, in engaging in different conversations. There is no time to to rest and settle, even stop or think sometimes. So I'm trying to make that space. So that's why the travelling's so good because it's the it's the only space where no one can really bother because you, you can just say I'm travelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't take a call. Mm. Yeah. Um, and if it's desperate, I will take the call, of course. But yeah, so so the first six months was like that. And then it started to open up. And we the, the first thing I, I did was I went to the architectural Biennale. And it was called the Garden of Privatised Delights, based obviously in Venice. So um, that was my first event that I went to internationally. And the, and the second one... I thought the first hundred days really started was when I went to Mombasa and Nairobi. Ah. That was an eye-opener because it makes you realise actually what is it that we are doing and why does it really matter? Um, when you're in a pavilion in Venice, um, you don't really get the sense of a community. You get a sense of the art, the space, the Biennale, um, which I'm quite used to actually. Mm. Um, so I've been going to the Biennales since 2009 in my previous sort of incarnation. and mm. um, So going in, into, you know, a space like Mombasa and Nairobi is really special, especially when you enter the beach of Mombasa, which was quite a, a, an exciting realisation about the communities that actually live there and the communities that we have in exchange with. Mm. You know, I was, after that trip, I always remember thinking the beach never lies you know, because I went into the beach, the team said, you shouldn't really go unaccompanied because, you know, um, you know, you're part of a delegation and so forth. But I did go and I met some two fellas who were selling bracelets. Of course, I bought them at the wrong price, double right. price, that is, <laughs> triple price. Possibly. They saw you come in. <laughs> they saw me coming, 100%. Yeah. But what they said to me was quite exciting and the kind of a realisation of what this is about. They said, well, you just crossed the line. I said, well, that's usually a problem. Um, this is no, no, not problem. You've just entered real Nairobi, where you're staying, which was the White Sands Hotel, um, is Europe. And uh, there's a differentiation. You've entered real Kenya. And then they told me their lives. They were, you know, um, they could not read or write, um, but they could look at patterns. And the bracelets they were making were beads, little intricate beads, of names of different people. So just write down the name you want on it. So, but but the thing was more about the kind of um, the energy of a place and the relations we try to build. Um, and the relations we're trying to build are with all sorts of people, you know, from mm. those that are in dire poverty and those that um, have got potential leadership um, worldwide. When you're in a place like Mombasa, Nairobi, you get a sense of um, a myriad sort of cultures as well and a lot of kind of creative talent that we're trying to connect with in a sense mm. so i think you know that was the moment i the penny dropped and i thought okay my first hundred days starts now not um in sort of december yeah. 2020 not on zoom yeah not on certainly yeah, not yeah, on yeah. Zoom. so you were there with the british council Yes, so we, I was there on a project called Cultural Protection right. Fund or Cultural Protection Programme, and that's really looking at how we protect and work with communities worldwide, looking at how heritage is protected thanks to the climate issues, thanks to conflict 
and thanks to, you know, technology and modernity. So the impact in Mombasa was that the coastal line is at risk of um, erosion and certain heritage sites are getting damaged and eroding away. And so our project is looking at how to um, build infrastructure and specialist use specialist techniques that we have in the UK that can work with communities there and create a sense of agency in location to continue the protective work of heritage. And it's, it's quite powerful, you know, so we looked at various sites, you know, ancient sites, so 10th century, 11th century sites. Wow. Yeah, it was quite gorgeous as well. And the, and the energy of the people, you know, is so gorgeous too. I wasn't aware of that. I, I just... The, the British Council would do that when it didn't have a British relation because these these buildings that you're saving are, aren't British, are they? They're, no. I didn't realise that. So I because I, I assume the British Council works with British artists, British-based artists, and getting them internationally seen. So as we say in the intro, these ambassadors. But to know that they you kind of go in and you're protecting other communities' assets, work yeah. is incredible. Yes, I, I think I think that the shift in British Council over the last sort of 10, 20 years, you know, you could say the turn of the century has been moving towards this idea of multi-mutual sort of exchange and benefit. And so when you're out, if you're only out there promoting yourself and what you're really brilliant at, yeah. um, there's only the kind of reception of receiving something and responding to. But is it really making a difference in sort of aspiration and, you know, real shift in location. I think with all the global challenges we're facing, I think there are points of actions that we all share. And it's like what you were saying earlier on, you know, we are all we all want the same thing. Or we mm. are we are humans at the end of the day. Mm. And so, you know, if we we seek happiness, we seek peace, we seek trusting relations in order to do things. So mm. so a lot of the work has to be multimutual. So so something that benefits um the the site in which you work and of course then the UK um, creative sector and we are about promoting the UK sector of course we are right um, but we're also about learning from other sectors and other communities and so a lot of the work we do is about that is, is, is homing in and tuning in to the frequency of the location but working also then with our specialist thing and that is creativity and there's that's the best thing I think the UK has to offer really of course there's many other things but for me being biased I would say Art, culture, creativity is, is one of the key strengths of, of the UK. Mm. Amen. So how, <laughs> how, do you, how do you choose these subjects? How do you choose these projects to get involved in? That's a good question. Because, because if yeah. there isn't that angle of we're doing it from a, an artist that we're taking somewhere, that, that you must be inundated with these places that need all this help. The good thing is we've, we've got 100 countries in which we have a base and within that wow. base, yeah, and within that base, we have at least 20 to 30, 40 different cities, villages, towns engaging with us. And what does a base mean? Like, so, like a physical yeah. space? So there's a, there's a phys there are physical spaces. Um, say, for example, we're in, 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 in India. Yeah. You will have um, a range of, of venues that deliver England. Because we do three things. Um, in we have what are known as three pillars. One is education, one is art culture, which is, for me, the heart of it, mm -hmm. and the other one is the English language. All three are very enabling, and that's what makes British Council unique. So it enables agency across the world to then connect 
with a whole range of different socioeconomic sort of platforms and continuums. So the bases that I'm talking about are really um, those bases. So there's, you know, the obvious thing, i.e. an office in which people work, but there are spaces and places in which we also create, engage, learn together. And so when we're researching projects, the research comes from a whole network of around 10,000 to 12,000 employees. And then the networks of networks within the cities and the villages, towns and the country itself. So it's an extraordinary network. I mean, if you were to ask a pertinent question affecting the world today Mm. and you asked your British Council team Mm. to respond to it, they will give you um, the fullest answer that you'll ever hear because you could just be on a Teams call um, and have 500 people on that call from across the world. You'd have to get your timings right because some people are asleep, <laughs> yeah, some people are awake. Yeah, yeah. But once you get them in the room, you, you and you'd, you'd have to sequence your, your, your meetings because of that time zone difference. But once you get them in the room, you get such a, 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 a kind of a full response about the subject matter itself and how people are experiencing it. Wow. I've never seen anything like it. You know, so in the past, when when I was doing my international programs, you'd be very much reliant on one or two individuals. Here you've got networks of networks of networks. It's quite quite an incredible organization, therefore. Does the government come to you for this sort of conundrum? Yes, they do sometimes. I mean, a lot of the time. Um so they see our vehicle um in a sense as a way of um, enabling um, the UK's reputation and understanding of the world to inform policy, in a sense. Although we're not a government department, we do work with and collaborate with, you know, government departments. And, of course, governments are always changing, ministers yeah. are always changing. But the one thing is is that's constant. I say the gravitational constant is the British Council um, for now, and we hope to keep it there, of course. Yeah. You have an incredible amount of responsibility then, and you've got so many people that are looking to you to lead. Yes, and I think that's that's the thing. To, to <laughs> that's lead. why your phone's always on. <laughs> it certainly is. But is, um, is this a role that you were seeking? Because we can talk about your, your job title yeah. before and what you were doing before, which has been an incredible achievement. But is, it, is this a role that you could see yourself in then? Absolutely not. This is the strange thing about destiny. You know, I was very happy curating, programming, designing in the neighbourhood. But that neighbourhood was very international. So I was always already working, you know, South America, South Asia, Middle East, um, Australia, New Zealand, America, Europe, Italy, Sicily. We, we were doing that work. But it was on a very micro level. And then one day I got a phone call from an agent saying, um, there's a job going. Um, we think it's suitable for you because you're doing a lot of international work. And so it's for British Council. And at first I, th- I thought, no way, man. I mean, that's such a big institution. Mm. And I was thinking about previous directors. I thought, oh, that's what Graham used to do, Graham Sheffield. Uh, I says, that sounds far too serious. A job for somebody like me. I mean, me. is Graham all right now? Or is he yeah. <laughs> He's in recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a really tragic end. He was like, do I want to do that? Yeah. I know. Yeah, he disappeared kind of thing. But I'm sure he's out there somewhere and I hope he's listening. Um, but yeah, so I, I wasn't sure. But then when the second call came and the, the main consultant phoned me this time, 
it started to open up a new reality. And that was that, you know, I could actually make a difference. You know, I could, rather than just work within the neighbourhood and make a difference within the networks I know, we could do this on a global level. And that became exciting, that I could play that role. Um, not as some sort of weird messiah, but just the idea of being at the centre mm. of major decision-making that was going to support artists, you know, and enable, you know, in particular artists in the periphery who don't get a chance or organisations that don't are not on the radar. Because British Council is not an easy organisation to understand. No, I mean, I, I, I've been on the website and looking and, and the first thing that come up is learn English. And I'm like, OK. And then I was trying to search for the art collection. And then and then there's all these other things you're saying, these outreach programmes and there's a digital programme. And there's so much going on there that it is hard to kind of finesse in a soundbite of what the British Council is. 100%. Yeah. I think this is the issue. Right. Um, that in the countries in which we work, they know us very well. In the UK, however, I think there is an issue about you know, do they do art and culture? Mm. Um, I didn't realise they did language. Mm. Um, what's this education programme all about? Yeah. You see, and when you go on the website, it mm. is quite cumbersome and complex. Yes. Um, and then finally you get to the fifth tab on the horizontal and you see art, you see cultural exchange or art and, art and culture programmes and then you go into that and then there's a multitude of different websites which look at art form. Mm. So music, dance, theatre, literature, visual art, architecture, design, fashion, creative tech, um, heritage. It, you know, it goes on and on and on. And it, you could end up getting so confused yeah. trying to navigate. So one of the big things I thought I could do was to help um, give our creative sector here agency and, and actually have an impact in kind of the policy um, that we, we, we need right now. And I think one-fifth into this century, I was feeling a little disillusioned with what was going on. Um, what was going on with regard to, at the time, a pandemic, a situation where we were no longer accepted in Europe because of the Brexit thing. Mm. Um, there were problems and issues with artists travelling in, particularly with performing arts. There were major issues around visas and confusion. All of that was going on. People were struggling to find their next buck. Um, and I thought, mm. okay, I, I spoke to some friends about it and they said, they need somebody like you. And I remember in the interview, they asked me one question. They said, well, they asked me, have you got a question for us? I says, I've only got one question. I says, will somebody like me, knowing how I work, fit in in British Council's bureaucracy mm. and institution? And they said, you're exactly what we need. And I thought, I've got the job, haven't I? I was thinking to myself, and I did. Um, so it was great. It was a, it was quite a, quite a moment to get into this position. Yeah, um, and it is exciting. I miss the arts in the sense of the working directly with the artist. Yeah, I think that's something that you know I try to find Still, wherever I can. Yeah. So recently, I was I was at Eastside Projects this weekend. It's part of Birmingham Festival. Um, that Martin Green has been curating and Gavin Wade was hosting me and I was meeting some of the artists. It was such a joy to be back in the zone. Of course, it's my hometown, so there's major bias there. Right. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> and yeah. Talking about your working with artists then, so for those who don't know, previously you were the director at the New Art Exchange in Nottingham. That's and right. you were there for a long time, weren't you? Like 
12 years or something? Yes, 12 yeah. years. Amazing. And you actually got an MBE for your contribution <laughs> to the visual arts, which is so brilliant. Thank and you. can you talk a bit about how you got into wanting to work with artists to curate and the importance of the new art exchange, you know, in the period you were there? Because you really did help transform it. Well, thank you very much. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's an epic memory and it will 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 stay with me in my reincarnation it's so powerful <laughs> <laughs> what, course, what is your reincarnation an animal or well if my dharma and karma is good i think um let's let's hope it's um it's in a space of nirvana um got it you well know, okay i good. would love would love that um let's see <laughs> um whatever that is yeah god knows but actually god does know if there is god yeah um but no, um, <laughs> there's a big existential question. I yeah. Should have gone there, should I? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. Okay, so New Art Exchange is is really special in the UK. Um, the story is I'd finished industrial management, manufacturing engineering from Nottingham Trent, which was Nottingham Poly then. Actually, it just just turned to Nottingham Trent Uni, and I went up a hill, down a hill, into an old Victorian building that had a door open. It was the Nottingham Art Exchange then. And I started volunteering and getting into the art. It was a massive realisation because it was the moment in which I found and started to understand my identity, you know. So this identity that seemed to be, you know, British, Birmingham, Punjabi, Indian, South Asian, blah, 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 the whole continuum of complexity. But actually there was another identity and that was the British Asian. And that was a big thing, particularly in the 90s. So there was a real transformation happening um, with artists like, you know, Talvin Singh in particular. Yeah. You know, people like that who were really redesigning the, the soundscape, the kind of fashion and style of British Asian culture. So I got involved in, the, in, in, in what they were doing there. They did a lot of festivals. They did a lot of visual culture. And then I went back to Birmingham. And then 16 years later, somebody gave me another call. And this is how I get my job. Somebody calls me and I, and I, and I respond. Um, and so they said, look, there's a job going. It's the director of the new venue, New Art Exchange, uh, which had merged Imaka Visual Arts and Appena Arts into New Art Exchange, and which would be the new venue. And so I took the call and I says, and, and the guy was the chair. He said, you'll have to apply, obviously, and you'll be up against a lot of competition. Mm. The job may not be the right one right now, but we think that with your track record and blah, 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 and what you're doing in Birmingham, it could be something good for you and good for us. So I applied, and lo and behold, third, fourth interview, loads of tests, including all that psychological stuff that analyzes mm. what you do when you're under really, really harsh pressure. So they really kind of grill you with this in terms of making sure that they've got the right person. You haven't got to draw like a picture of a house and they analyse it and a tree and have someone waving and then they go, oh, this means that... It's quite... Is it? It's similar to that, actually, without the drawings, but they, they have a whole range of different questions they ask and they, they look at about four or five categories. On all the categories, I scored 90% plus, right? Legend. Apart from... Legend. Yeah. No, but apart from one. And, and that was organisational psychologies. So my organisational psychology or my logic to organise was the, was the area. It was still in, in its kind of mid-70s, but still. Wow. It was lower than everything else. So everything else was really, really, really highly competent. So anyway, I got the job and started there. But the history of that space was very much about um, understanding 
um, the new perspective of cultural diversity and its value in art and society. So it was very much looking at the kind of um, expression of multiple cultures and hybrid cultures in the contemporary age. And so that whole period of 12 years was a phenomenal space to be in. And of course, Nottingham is a great city because it's small. Mm. You can manoeuvre much quicker than a big city because mm. there are less hierarchies and blocks and negotiations. You just get on with it. Mm. So we just got on with it and we started curating. Um, and I work with a range of curators. I would, you know, curate a few things myself, but more, in, more, less of the detail, more of the strategy. Um, and we saw a, a lot of incredible things happen. I always remember the first major commission was with Zineb Sadira, and it was bought by Tate. It was called Floating Coffins, of course. Recently, with the Golden Lion win with Sonia Boyce, we were adjacent to Zineb Sadira. Oh, wow. I always oh, wow. remember being on the steps, looking at the crowd of thousands of people who came for the ribbon cut, thinking, what's going on? Zineb's next door. Sonia's in this venue, because Sonia was one of the artists we used to work with at, at New Art Exchange. And here I am, um, at the, the, the highest moment, I think, in contemporary art, and that is delivering the Venice Biennale Pavilion. Mm. So, so that whole trajectory of New Art Exchange was, was where I, where I learned the trait about you know, complexity. And I always used to think and say that if you, you know, if you're in, 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 in New Art Exchange, the street never lies. There's a, there's a real brutal truth about contemporary art positioned in a neighbourhood that's not um, attuned to experiencing contemporary expressionism on a regular basis, mm. apart from contemporary society. And, and a lot of ideas that artists have are drawn from those contemporary issues anyway. Mm. And so this kind of exchange of reality, you know, the kind of surrealism and abstract is abstract kind of art that we used to bring would be would be an eye-opener. And there were moments in which you'd 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 think twice about what you program, mm. but then you think, no, we should program it, even if it's complex. I was I'll always remember when Leo Asimota put on a show with us and People, because he was Nigerian, the Nigerian community had, had got wing of it. And so they brought a whole crew in to say, oh, we've got a Nigerian artist at New York Exchange. So they came in, big group, and I was with my chair and vice chair planning the next business plan. You know how it is. Um, they went into the venue, and within two minutes, they came out, like hands in the air, thinking, what the hell was that? And they were rushing out the, the building. And I said to the chair, I said, look, I have to go intervene. I've got to find out what's going on. So I went over and I says, guys, what's happened? He says, we came here to see a Nigerian artist. We, we don't understand what the work is. So I took them back in and I walked through and I, with them and I, I did a little gallery tour. It took me about half an hour and I explained the works and then they really got into it and started to understand. So wow. the one thing I learned about New Art Exchange is that, you know, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to work hard You've got to sometimes work twice as hard with, with the communities in order to engage them because they can easily dismiss it. And, you know, well, they can be scared of it, can't they? Like, yeah. And if they don't get it, then, yeah, they, they feel frustrated. I guess, I guess there's no sensitivities to their critique either. If they're in a community, it's like they don't care if they go, I don't like this, it's shit, mm -hmm. I don't get it, you know, in front of the artist because it's like, you know, you're, 
you know, when you're in the art world, you understand how to talk about art and how to be sensitive. And, you know, as an actor, people talk to me in a certain way about like a performance or a direction. But when you don't have any of that bravado, then you're you're kind of straight to the heart mm. of everything. And I guess working within that community is incredibly rewarding, but I'm sure at times upsetting mm. or or really challenging. Oh, yes, definitely challenging. I remember once being threatened to be beaten by baseball bats um, because the work was so contentious and wow. that, that we were making fun of the community. <gasps> um, and I had to keep calm the situation down by involving the artist who was very incredible and explain the situation. So basically, the, the situation was that the artist had created um, f- images of four women that looked like a painting, but they were dressed head to toe um, in very strong Islamic costume uh-huh. with a grill, you know, in covering the face. But when you looked close to how the image had been made, it was made up of pornographic imagery. Uh, right. And it was really harsh, like, you know, oh, everything wow. was being shown. And so on the night, because um, I had a, a cura- um, an, an invigilator and she was from Iran, who's very used to this kind of stuff. And she said, I'll call you if there's a problem. And lo and behold, the, the phone was buzzing in my top pocket. And I looked at the, the phone and it said, Armin. I thought, oh, no. I answered it. And she goes, with a very beautiful Persian voice, Skinder, I think you should come upstairs. We have a problem. And so I God. went upstairs and there was this um, lady from the Pakistani community um, dressed in traditional costume with a very Nottingham accent, which also kind of twists the kind of idea of identity and hybridity, and said, you are, you guys are taking the piss. You're making fun of um, who we are. Um, I'm going to making some phone calls right now to my, you know, my brothers and friends to come here and smash this place up with baseball ah, bats. <laughs> I've just got goosebumps. That's terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, and I says, you know what, madam, I, I, I know how you feel because I felt the same when I saw this work. Um, I thought this is this could be a problem, but I had to show it. And I want to sh- tell you why I want to show you, why we wanted to show this work, by you meeting the artist. So the artist was a very renowned artist, represented by Listen Gallery, um, from Lahore, Rashid Rana. And Rashid's explanation was so gorgeous. He said he was crushing stereotypes and bringing them into um, what seemed to be a beautiful exterior. But when you searched inside, it was deeply dark, um, and uh, menacing, and that was the stereotype of Eastern women and Western women. Western women being, you know, super liberal and loose, and Eastern women being controlled by costume, by patriarchal system. And he said that bring them together was the idea was to crush and break them. But the way he explained it to her was in such layman's term, and it was a kind of profound simplicity, but such a complexity in that. Distilling it to that, so obviously, Rashid had prepared for this moment. Oh, yeah. He had prepared because he couldn't show it in Lahore. He said that to me. He says you can censor it here. As soon as he said the word censor to me, I said no. I have to show this, mm. and we have to have the debate. The great thing is that the lady in question said, "Oh, I get it. This is amazing." She's, oh my god, she's oh. giving me goosebumps. She totally switched the wow. situation. Not only that, we got a lot of people coming from the community who wore hijabs to see the show. And, of course, the rumour in the community was that at New Art Exchange, they had the pornographic show. So there was a kind of irony to it. 
And the irony was also that in South Asia, there's a big consumption of of pornographic material, particularly in, in some of the villages. And so there was a kind of, the artist was looking at also the contradictions that happen within society. Mm. That as much as nobody likes to see seeing this imagery placed upon an Islamic dress or, a, or an Eastern dress, um, there is a contradiction that we need to accept. And the genuine truth is that we are hypocrites as humans because we consume it, we love it, we're secretive about it. We can't be honest about it. And here mm. we are exposing it all. And let's have a conversation about it. Let's have a dialogue about it. So wow. that's that's why the work had to be shown. So one thing I learned about New Art Exchange was that you should never shy away from work that is challenging, disruptive, and, and potentially upsetting. But what you must have is a way of dealing with how you communicate and how you engage communities in a way that they feel safe to have a dangerous conversation. Mm. Well, you get, there's part of a quote here that says, I believe artists and cultural professionals help challenge, provoke, and make sense of the world. Yes. That's something you said. Did I? That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yours. Okay. And yeah, and that just like says everything you've just said then. It's like you have to be provoked. You have to be challenged. Otherwise, we're not going to learn. We're not going to be pushed somewhere. And painful images, painful situations push you somewhere to make you a better person and understand the world and yourself more. 100%. I mean, I mean, without being provoked and challenged, we will sit in our echo chamber. Yeah. Um, and and it might be, you know, ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and you might just, but you'll. What will happen is that life around you will will move at a pace, leave you in a situation where where it'll come back to bite later on. So it's it's. it's I'd rather be engaging and getting art to engage communities so that we create these collaborative, conscious, creative communities so that they, you know, are active citizens um, and not just accepting the status quo because yeah. the status quo is, 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 is where the danger lies in all cultures. It's really important as well being able to translate what an artwork is, the meaning behind exactly. it, without dumbing it down too much, and in, with with respect to the artist's intention as well, because some artists might not want you to like just lay out what everything's about immediately. Mm -hmm. But I think in order to include more people and to bring in new audiences, I've noticed it myself. Even just having moved from London to the southeast coast, like having a gallery there, it's a very different thing because you do have a responsibility in a way to audiences that aren't familiar with art to write a press release. Of some kind you know to give directions to books or to to websites or just to ways of interpreting what you're about to see whereas in london i think we were a bit worried about being too didactic or mm. you know giving too much information you'd almost just never give any information um but i think it is important to have a balance it's hard to find that balance without testing it you know and this mm. is this is why you know when you're running a space you you've got to be courageous to test and try and you know if you fail, just, you know, Samuel Beckett says, just learn to fail better. <laughs> you know, I remember saying that in a speech, and then somebody came up to me, says, what's all this nonsense about failing? He says, surely you want to be more successful. I says, yeah, no, it was kind of, it was meant to lead to the ascent towards success. Oh, you keep, you keep learning for your failure. Yeah. I mean, that was the whole thing, but some people take it literally. So that, that whole kind of literal interpretation in communities, you know, can 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 be challenging. And so I can understand when organisations, curators, um, you know, artists themselves, you know, kind of censor or 
kind of reduce what they're trying to do. It's not so much the artist, actually. It's more, it's more the kind of institution, actually, that says, OK, let's make it easy for the audience. But actually, you're doing them a disservice. So actually, the complexity is really important. It's patronising, isn't it, it's if you do that? Yeah, but I think fundamentally with all art, it's just being told how to see. Like this artist told this woman how to see the art right. and suddenly opened up. And it's probably, yeah. probably, it was yeah. a changing moment. I think with any artworks, so many people are challenged, but as soon as someone steps in, they're able to say, well, this is what the artist is doing. This is what it's saying. Suddenly it opens a little door and you're like, oh, okay. And you feel like it belongs to you suddenly. And that's mm. all that conversation is. So this, this patronizing thing and, you know, and it, we, it goes across the board in arts, you know, with, with writing and as an actor, it's like, don't patronize the audience. Let them do a bit of work. People like to work a bit harder. Do you know what I mean? You don't yeah. have to lay everything out for them. No, no, totally. It also opens up new interpretations. So actually, if you write something, you have no idea quite what the impact of that writing might no. end up being. Because no. I think different people's experiences and backgrounds can bring different um, sort of interpretations of the work, mm. which is also really important, I think. Mm. I mean, when I think about, um, you know, the kind of works that, you know, that really transformed, because when you're thinking about an art space um, that's in a in neighbourhood or in a city, mm. you think about, Okay, what's the ecology here? Who's who, what's the kind of intersection or interconnectivity between the the parties? And the main parties really are, you know, your audiences, communities, your artists, your institutional sort of activators, often curators, programmers. So the idea is to create an ecology where there's a dialogue, and of course, nobody's in a fixed position either. So you, as a curator, are an audience. And sometimes as an audience, you're actually the artist as well. So, you know, you're you're spinning and working in different ways, particularly in this modern age. So trying to make your space and trying to make art relevant. The one thing I learned about British Council, though, was um, the idea that the driver is cultural relations using the vehicle of art. Because when I started, I had all these projects and programmes which were thinking like a curator or a director of a gallery. And somebody said to me, uh, my deputy director, Cortina, said, oh, but Skinder, is it cultural relations? I says, I was by thrown a bit by this. You know, what, what, what do you mean, cultural relations? Surely everything's about relations. Mm. But there is an actual theory and method around cultural relations. Then um, my own thing, well, what is that then? Well, in simple terms, it's about building trust between people and parties and the and the components that make that ecology that I referred to earlier, like the audience, community, artist, and institution and curator. It's bringing that trust together and getting the relations to collaborate and do something together. So you're not a passive, um, you know, party within the process. You're an active part member of that moment so you're not sitting there and just watching you're mm. actively engaging in the sense that you've either informed what's on stage or what's in the gallery or you're going to respond to it and react to it in a way that's going to shift your learning into some pragmatic action you know that go happens post event so that was the thing about cultural relations i learned at british council and i started thinking well a lot of the work at New Art Exchange, because you know the question Rob you asked earlier was the memory of 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 that moment of twelve years, and there's so many mad memories. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget 
Doug Fishbone's Leisureland Golf, where we made a little mini um, golf course um, in Venice. And a lot of the art world were saying, oh, my God, what's Skinder doing? You know, he's gone crazy. He's doing a, a golf course. How, that can't be serious. But each nine holes had um, a provocation. I'll never forget Ellie Harrison's. She's an artist from Glasgow. And she created this um, kind of kind of experience of getting into England from France. So we had England in a canal where, well, England being, yeah, it was mainly England, Wales and Scotland. We, we didn't do the Northern Ireland and Ireland bit in it, but there was a map of England on the floor, um, which, which was green, and you had to hit it from the French green into over the canal into into England mm. and Wales and Scotland, but it was so difficult to do. So the idea, and you, oh, most well, most of the sense, time, yeah. the ball would bounce into England, then into the water. <laughs> yeah, and then we had a net to catch it. And the it's quite old, metaphorical. Yeah, it was yeah. metaphorical. So there was things like that. Hitain Patel's um, working man. So you had to work with the ball to get it over the the line, and then you had to hit it into the hole. So there was nine holes. You nine said, holes, and you yeah. had nine artists that then were like, yeah, told to come in and create their own hole. Exactly. Okay. So they so they created nine provocations, and those provocations were the issues of the world today. Mm. So Yinka Shonibear looked at, um, you know, the exploitation of African footballers by creating a nuclear cloud of footballs, beautiful. Um, we had Doug Fishbone's boat where that had had recently sunk. There was a um, an Italian ship that had, um, you know, sank and the, and the captain had run away, but it was also symbolising the problem in Venice around these big ships coming in, disrupting the environment, etc. So there's a whole range of different provocations um, that, that were at play. But what was important was the ecology. So one, getting the project in... in, in so there's, it was the first Midlands collateral pavilion of all time. But to get it... What is collateral pavilion? Ah, good question. <laughs> so, so Venice has a main programme. Right. It has three things. It has its main programme... Um, which is curated by a curator of significance. And I think that, yeah, that year, 2015, edition 56, we had Okwai Enwazar. Yeah. I spoke to Okwai in, in New York, actually, and he gave me the blessing. So I came back saying, wow, Okwai said yes, if it's a good proposal. Um, and so I told Arts Council, I told the universities, told the network that I was working with, and everybody's on site, so we made it happen. So this, the second thing is you have national pavilions. So British Pavilion, French Which are pavilion, permanent. Which are permanent, exactly, in the, the historical. And then you have collateral pavilions. Actually, there's four things. So the collateral pavilions are part of the Venice programme officially, mm. but they're known as collateral pavilions. So they'll be listed in the book. They'll be listed on the map and you'll get your little dot and you have to pay a licence for it, of course, and the licence fees are high, right. but they have to be approved by the curator of the show. So Aqua approved it and we got in and it was great. And the fourth one is that just venues doing their thing. Yeah, in, in pop-ups and stuff. Pop-ups, yeah. but also established, um, you know, established galleries that you have in Venice doing their shows. So you have that kind of dynamic. So we were a collateral pavilion, but what was interesting was the ecology around it. So the research that we did is that we went into Italy um, about a year and a half before, 
and we spoke to people about Venice, and a lot of people in Venice said we don't like the we don't like the Biennale. It might bring us money and economy, but you know everybody has these fancy events, but nobody invites us. You know, oh, unless you wow. unless you're high 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 class, mm. um, and you're part of it. But most people, and we were in San Pietro, a, a, a neighbourhood, and my team because I used to do a residency program with South Italy, um, and so those South South Italians had gone into Venice to do this mapping for us. Right. Um, so they were also looking at venues. So they're working with our curators. They're working with um, our artists as well, and they'd done this mapping, but. They, and they've spoken to the community. So when we launched, um, we launched by knocking on everybody's door and inviting them personally with a letter from myself saying, come to our pavilion. And they came. Wow. Not only did they come, they kept coming every day. And we had a, we, we set up this beautiful restaurant with the local um, sort of chefs and local farmers supplying the food. So it was, and it was known as the collateral pavilion to go to. And it was, in the end, it was voted by Times as the, the third best thing to do in Venice. Wow. Well, it's because it's immersive as it's well. Immersive. So so yeah. there's an understanding that it's for you, definitely, Brave. because you're part of the actual artwork suddenly. You activate it. And it can be contentious because some of the issues are contentious. Um, Yarel Shabini created um, um, a checkpoint between Israel and Palestine. And, you know, it was... It was dark, sinister. It had all this kind of electronic gadgetry, you know, to get through the gate and the ball had... You had to hit the ball perfectly in order for it to get through the gate and it projected onto the other side. And then you could knock it into the hole. Um, some people found that quite disturbing. Um, mm. John Acumfra's piece was quite interesting because it looked at, you know, shoot and kill in uh, with black males in, in America. And when I remember when we presented it in, in, in Nottingham, the... There was a, a complaint made by a lady. She said, a black woman who said, you guys are, um, you, you're trivialising by people playing and trampling over an issue that's really, really important and you've made it playful. And I said, well, the artist's intention was that we are complicit because we're playing a game and dismissing what we're seeing because mm. we want to get a big good score. Because when you play that game, you want to get a good score. And you do get all competitive and, you, you know, you've got nine holes um, and you want to get it done in 18. It's really hard to do that unless, you know, you're really good, good at this kind of mm. stuff. So you become complicit. So, so some, of the, some of the work is, is, is complex. It starts to upset people. Um, and some people don't want to hear about Israel-Palestine again. And again and again. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Because it, it's not resolved, is it? So, so, so a lot of the work that we saw looks at the issues but what's amazing is that the communities are on side. And, you know, we, we finished our pavilion because we couldn't afford to go six months after about two and a half, three months. I remember there was a petition by the local community and the kids and the families saying, keep the golf course going. Oh, wow. So they saw it as a golf course, less, less about art. But, but I'll, I'll never forget Alex Farkerson's reaction. When, in his, from the tape. From the tape. Yeah. He, he, come, he came in on the launch. Um, and he comes up to me and he says, he says, I wasn't sure about what you're doing. But he said, it's bloody brilliant. Oh. <laughs> and and he, was, he was totally right because the reaction we were getting, um, and the, you know, so, for example, when the collaterals finished their, their shifts, they'd all come to our 
space to have a round of golf and some mm. drinks and some delicious food. Mm. So the whole ecology, what what we go back to is that you, you create a vibrant space. You create a community. Yeah, and you create a community, exactly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mm. What's so interesting about that as well is how transferable that is. You know, and it's really interesting Mm. because your role now is in a way quite structural and it's almost like... I think you're able to like make significant change for artists in a different way to what you were doing before. But if you think about the way that the local community there felt quite excluded from mm. the Venice Biennale, say, um, what was it like for yourself? Like, how did you get into art? If you think about your childhood mm. and like, because I feel like the kind of curator you've yeah. been mm. is somebody who's really been about inclusion and and bringing different communities, not even like a community that you grew up in, but just like mm. international communities together and platforming them and giving them um, a space for their voice to be heard louder. Um, what was it like? How did you actually get into art? I'm so interested in Yeah, what did you do yeah. 16 years between volunteering and actually taking the role <laughs> well the, those 16 years i was um i was learning the tabla ah um i was designing a few kind of hats um just mucking around and i was part of um, a music circle that i'd set up called can tabla. you still play the tabla now yeah then? of course can because i, I taught a dean da 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 one two da 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 one two three four da 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 one two three four da da three four i think that's what it was isn't yeah, it yeah, i did yeah. a workshop with nitin sawney oh my god and akram khan oh. years ago at the national theater and they taught me how to count oh. on the tabla yes so it's da din din da da din din da and then you can play with different variations so there's various ways of you know so the so the vocal is the kind of rhythm and expression of what am i doing there then what am i i'm counting on each section of my finger there so the beauty of indian count is one Two, three, four. Yes. So where your finger is, yeah. just with, uh, for listeners, there's you, or you're, if you look at your finger now, yeah. you have lines going up it three. where the knuckle and everything is. Yeah. But you count each of them mounds that's as right. a beat. As a beat. So you so can go through the whole hand. That's right. So da, din, din, da. Da, din, din, da. So if it's a four-beat cycle, yeah. you've got four beats on one finger, yeah. basically, and you count them. And then you have variations of, four beats so you know four can work with three it can become seven beat cycle 
four can be eight cycle. That was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cycles, I absolutely loved it. Three I never thought about it until you said that. I actually that. learned about this as well when <laughs> I was doing commercial music at Westminster for my BA. Um, Najma Akhtar, who's an amazing musician, she yeah. um, she collaborated even with Led Zeppelin, actually. She's so, so cool. She came in and taught us for a whole, um, what do you call it? Not season. It's in my brain from yesterday's episode. Session. Uh, no, you know, when you're in a term. Oh, right. She came in for a term yeah. and, and was our like visiting lecturer. Yeah, and she great. taught us so much. She was so extraordinary. I love, love, love her. Well, you know, it's it's funny because uh, that was a big moment. Those that those that decade. I presume it's probably the nineties turn of century, probably. Yeah, when yeah. she was teaching me. Yeah, it would have been like two thousand, two thousand and one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so Najmakta was a regular in our festival in Nottingham. Oh, really? So we, we yeah. used to have what we had was the first ever outdoor South Asian festival, and it's called Nottingham Mela. Yeah, that started before I volunteered there in nineteen eighty eight, and they started off with the great. Um, Kavali singer Nusrat Fatili Khan but Najmakta was on that program mm. and I remember when I programmed and directed the festival after 21 years we brought her back oh, cool. oh she's a huge hit I mean and and hugely inventive so and and brilliantly traditional so you're going you've got this great traditional style mm. so I, I learned the traditions in that period and I started working in the community with regeneration I worked in some of the tough neighbourhoods in Birmingham and then I started to officially get into the arts in 2002 properly. And I but worked, working in these communities in, yeah. a, in a cultural level yeah. through music. Well, the, the, there were several things I was doing. Um, one was looking at enterprise, looking at skills, uh-huh. looking at you know education. And then the other thing was working with communities around sort of art form. Right. So how do you engage communities so they learn about the art form, but also, you know, participate and go to different events, be part of society, go to these, you know, these big, big organisations like Symphony Hall or Town Hall that people are intimidated by. You know, they say, oh, it's not for us. Mm. It's, it's too posh or it's not, it's not relevant. But actually you make it relevant because you, how you programme it. And how, but it's not simply about you put a programme on and people come. You've got to work much harder and that is... You've got to do, you know, participatory kind of workshops, build confidence, um, get people's appetite up. The best way to get appetite up is, is actually to do the art form. So this is why, you know, this Let's Create Strategy of Arts Council is very clever because it's, it's, it's the idea is that we can all be creative. Yeah. We don't need to be, you know, um, Akram Khan mm-hmm. or, 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 or Kasha Dedra or whatever. We can be ourselves in this. Um, so I was being myself, but I've created a really good energetic group called Tublaholics. It was the intoxication of Tubla. And from that, I got formally into the arts. And I worked with Sampad and Mac for six years. And then then I got called back into Nottingham. Um, Sampad and Mac is? So Sampad is a South Asian arts development agency. Right. Um, looking at mainly performing arts. And Mac is Midland Arts Centre, which is the the centre that was set up for young people in what would have been the sort of 50s and 60s and and it has an amazing facility you know you know um, theatre cinema you can learn pottery there you can do drawing you can do tai chi you know you can do all sorts of things in this amazing venue Mm -hmm. and they've tried to keep it accessible but avant-garde at the same time so they have a nice little cafe they work with all sorts of communities. So it's really multicultural, intercultural. 
And we just did an episode with Sharon Walters all about her exhibition, which is at Mac. Ah, currently. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, because they're actually having an exhibition program as well. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, and she's um she's done all her amazing collages, and she's oh, that's had right. her first in, uh, solo. proper solo exhibition in a public yes, uh, yes. gallery. Yeah, yeah, we did an amazing episode with her recently, and yes, I'm yeah, saying, I remember but that. I know yeah. that Mac, the curator, there has been so supportive for her, and I think it's really given her an opportunity that she didn't previously have, which is brilliant. And so, you know, that that space um, is is where I spent a lot of years, you know, as, just as a resident of Birmingham, you know, taking my kids to different shows and getting them involved in activities and then working with the Mac and Sampad together because they were in partnership mm. um, was, was the professionalisation. And I met some great artists during that period. You know, that was so inspiring. Knitting was obviously one of them. Mm. There were people like Shami Dutta, Anush, Anushka Shankar and Ravi Shankar I used to look after when they used to come oh, wow. to Birmingham. <laughs> and I always remember, um, I'm not sure I should say this on radio, but you know when you say goodbye at the end, you go left, right, and we went the wrong way and our lips collided instead. <laughs> well, that's quite a funny moment. Yeah. I mean, I... It was quite a little twinkling moment, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was quite funny. Um, but, yeah, so there was some funny thing. I was quite clumsy in that sense. But I think the thing that drove me was was the, the idea of, you know, really getting people to engage. And I always remember the youth theatre stuff we used to do there mm, as well. So um, important. Oh, my God. That Changed was, my life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, even in Nottingham, we kept the tradition going. So we used to have this thing called YARD, Youth Arts Research Development. And, you know, I used to work with various artists who would, you know, change, transform people's confidence. So you'd have a young kid coming in, you know, shy, but interested, maybe didn't really want to be there, but were there um, by coincidence or destiny, whatever it was. Three years later, they completely transformed. You know, they were... They were conscious citizens mm. who were transforming their lives in the future. And some of those kids, they've gone on, well, a lot of those kids have gone to do great things. You know, one became one of the leaders of the young parliament. Oh, wow. uh, one of them is now running one of our programmes mm. at, at New Art Exchange. Some are working at South Bank. So you see what I mean? So some have gone into acting. Um, so the two artist directors I work with, Rachel Young and Suri Pillay, both incredible thinkers and so supportive of young people's lives. And it's such, it's such a joy to, to, to witness and be part of that and enable that. So my whole thing was about creating fertile ground so that we would enable communities that were in the margins, in the periphery, who couldn't afford to go to the theatre or buy the course that was on offer mm. for young people. So they would get it free and very thankful to things like BBC Children in Need, you know, who really understand that, you know, kids in poverty and kids in inner cities um, who do engage in art, you know, do great things later on. And I always believe that, you know, if we can get 100% of our neighbourhood engaged in art on a regular, deeper, meaningful way, you would get a far more happier society yeah. and a society that would actually work together. Then this whole COVID thing was a disaster for everybody. Mm. And it did remind us that actually this being together, work together is really, really essential part of what makes us human. Mm. I just came back from Davos last week. I was at Davos for the 
don't ask how I got there. <laughs> it, was a, it was a proper backdoor route. Basically, this, I did a talk in, in Venice, and the person in the crowd wanted to really talk to me. It says, I want to take you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And she took me to Davos. And it was really amazing. Her name's Johanna Zuletti. has got a wonderful project. Mm. 7,001 Love Letters to Humanity. Oh, wow. Yeah. And her mission is about art and humanity has been at the centre of decision-making going forward for the fourth industrial revolution. We're hearing so much about artificial intelligence right now. We're hearing things about, you know, our body featuring technology, literally, mm. um, that will help us make decisions. One of the things sometimes missing, though, is art and humanities at the table. And so we are seen as entertainment or we are seen as escapism, but we're much more than that. Yeah. We can be that. Of course we can. And it's important that you know people find time to enjoy life through creativity. But it's also a very meaningful space in which you can encourage others and encourage communities to collaborate and make a real difference. So at Davos, our mission was to understand how it worked, but also to start talking to very, very brilliant people. And we bumped into the quantum physicist Deepak Chopra. Oh, wow. He gave us his personal number. Oh, my God. Yeah. Can you tell us it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's on it's on Jana's phone. Um <laughs> But we we got it because we wow. so did you did you get it right? So WhatsApp him just to check and we WhatsApped and his picture was on it. So he says we got the right number. Oh my god! Uh, it was amazing. Yeah. So there were people like Deepak there, but there was there was a lot more in incredible people who are trying to do something around this idea of um, transhumanism, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of sounds quite scary, and it probably is. So what 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 we need to do in the arts is is to be at the table basically and not be seen um, as the kind of um, retrofit um, that tries to respond to or even provide a kind of future sort of soothsaying kind of perspective on the world actually play a pragmatic role so in change yeah in provoking change in yeah yeah because because these these spaces can be can be very elitist and they can be very very much about the rich people who make decisions mm. who've got that privilege and so for me to be in a place where, you know, it costs £6,000 a day to stay yeah, um, and to sneak in through the back door and get it all free was amazing. And for those um, who don't know about Davos, Davos is yeah. the World Economic Forum and it's an annual meeting that happens every year and kind of like very influential people will go there and almost like predict what's going to happen next in the world. It's quite a big yeah. deal, isn't it? Well, the, the, and, it's, and this abbreviation is WEF. World Economic Forum. So everybody talks about it like the WEF. Oh, what do you think about the WEF? And I'm saying, what are you talking about? A World Economic Forum. Yes, of course. In, in, in that space, you've got the, the big CEOs and they all meet there because they don't then need to fly across the world to meet each other. Mm -hmm. They meet there. Mm. They make big decisions. Mm. They influence government policy. Mm. They influence how the economy is going to change. Now, creative industries needs to be at that table. Creative economy needs to be on the table. So that's kind of what we were doing. But not only that, I think the whole thing about the kind of human element to what we need right now also needs to be at that table. You know, I think, like I said earlier, you know, one-fifth one into this century, I feel, you know, you're, we're always heading towards this code red scenario. We might already be there. Um, so, 
you know, the arts and cultural space, space of education, and especially when the intersection between science, technology and art comes together um, with the idea of understanding our past and future um, in the moment we're in, you know, that that's when it becomes really powerful, you know, when art is pragmatically engaged and it's not sitting in its echo chamber agreeing with one another. You see what I mean? So it's, it's that kind of space of like, hold on, man, I don't agree with this. So now I'm part of this new network called Tribe for Life, um, which looks at, at technology CEOs, artists who are looking at coming together as one group, but with differing perspectives. And you, do, and you hear those different perspectives. Like some people say, well, what's the, what's the need for Davos? You know, it's too elitist. Mm. Some people say, well, what's, what is, what's art and culture really going to do? So it's, it's about you know, creating that third space of invention. So we're not descending into compromise and therefore not being fulfilled. We're actually ascending into a space of um, sort of um, pragmatic interventions which are going to um, inform uh, a new world going mm. forward, particularly if there's going to be a fourth industrial revolution. We should be part of that. Yeah, your, definitely. Your head feels busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> incredibly. But I, I love the fact you refer to people as conscious citizens and you say that people find themselves like at the youth club as mm. it's, it's a coincidence or it's destiny. Yeah. And you don't really have any control over that and you feel like you are a conscious citizen, you do have that control. But I love the fact you refer to destiny, which mm. brings me around to, yes. we do mention it a lot, Venice. Totally. And Venice is referred to, Venice Binali, as Art World Olympics. Mm. And... I didn't know until this moment, stupidly, that the British Council has been responsible for the British Pavilion in Venice since 1937. So the British Council has decided the artist that will represent Great Britain every year. And every two years. Every sorry, every two years. But actually, well, it, year. it is every year because yeah. you do the architecture we one do. too. Yeah. We yeah, do. and so congratulations to you because the artist that the British Council selected this year, Sonia Boyce, won the Golden lion which is uh, a trophy which represents venice itself mm. and it is a big deal and she shared that with uh, simon lay yes and you were fundamental in sonia being the artist that represents great britain you said yourself you worked for her in the past mm. now that to me brings me around to destiny mm. and coincidence because you work together and then you've taken this role now in the british council and suddenly we have the incredible talent of sonia boyce representing that country and winning the award yeah. congratulations thank you it's amazing but i mean how beautiful is that for you to know that you've facilitated that for a world audience but also for sonia and for our country Oh man, I, t I tell you what, I'm, that that moment when Sonia cut the ribbon and she turned to me, um, and her eyes were like welling up, and we both knew we had to start saying a few things right now. Was was a was an incredibly enriching moment. To win the golden lion is like impossible, you know. We weren't even prepared for it. I mean, I was I was literally in my tracksuit bottoms running around in the morning, <laughs> and then, and I'd really messed up. I won't say what happened, but uh, just put it this way: it was a it was a late night the night before, got it. and my alarm didn't wake me up. And anyway, so I got this message saying, "Oh my God, we've won the Golden Lion!" And I thought, "What? What's going on? What's going?" On? I ran to the venue. As I entered the venue, the most extraordinary thing happened. 
You know, you talk about destiny. Yeah. So well, her, you do. Yeah, oh, yeah. I talk about oh, yeah, it. <laughs> well, there was a really, really defining moment of a sequence of calibration that was blew my head up. So I went into the venue and on the screen are four singers. Mm-hmm. Most of the time you're in the gallery, you hear them experimenting, testing sounds, and they're never quite synchronised. But when I walked in, they were synchronised on the word free. Oh, wow. And they were singing free in different frequencies. Mm. And it was so beautiful. This is Sonia's installation that formed the show. That Yeah. yeah. And, and it was at the moment I'd, I'd run in to give blessing to the venue because I'd just found out we'd won the Golden Lion. And I was telling the crowd, because they're in the queues, I said, we just won the Golden Lion, by the way. We just won the Golden Lion, by the way. Anyway, but the moment that that moment of destiny was was really incredible, and the fact that Sonia won it, and Sonia had worked with myself um, in previous years, and done, done you know represented her divine kind of um, sort of project with me in a different sort of form, mm. um, was was an was an incredible moment. So, I, I mean, I mean, words can't describe that feeling, that emotion. Uh, well, I mean, Russell pride. Lind. I mean, cr- pride, incredible pride. Incredible How did love. you know then? When yeah. so having the responsibility of the artist, does it, it does it all fundamentally come down to you, or is there no. a whole board? That no, you no, there's a it? there's a jury. Right. So you you basically have a jury, and Andrew Rose, you mentioned, was mm. the previous person who chairs that board. Mm. So our new person is Emma Dexter. So she oh, she's chairs, great. Yes, Emma's mm. great, and they bring the jury together, and that jury then grapples over this artist, that artist, and then decides, okay, what is the zeitgeist saying right now? What do we need to do in this moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and Sonia, obviously, was the artist selected. And what, what, what a great decision it was. Because the beauty of Sonia's work is that it's collaborative. Yeah. And it's also historical, you know, over four decades of, um, you know, shifting aesthetic the work she does with Chelsea College of Art, you know, around black modernism in art, you know, all of that, being collecting the tape, becoming, you know, a Royal Academy artist recently as well. All of that seemed like the ideal moment, you know. And some might say, well, why hadn't it happened before? It's, it really is dependent on how the jury think. But you can force the pace as an organisation. So British, British Council produced the pavilion they co-curate the pavilion, really, because now we have this Shane Aykroyd associate curator. So Emma Ridgway from um, Modern Art Oxford came in to help us with this. And, you know, Sonia decided and selected Emma Ridgway. Right. So normally, you know, an, a curator selects the artist and, you know, this process flips. So our role as commissioner is to actually, you know, challenge ourselves as well. Some people had said to me, maybe the pavilion over the last few iterations was too flat. Um, didn't really punch hard enough. When you compare it with all the national pavilions, it was good. But how can it be really kind of outstanding? Mm. And so the way one pushes the pace is, is getting the right people in the room. Mm. So if you have voices which are different, that's important. But there needs to be a kind of collaborative sort of um, vision or a kind of often we say in festivals is that kind of curatorial premise so what's the curatorial premise in this moment you know that then defines 
how a decision might be made. Does the jury define that curatorial premise? Like in the Turner Prize, the mm -hmm. recent curatorial premise was driven by collective. Mm -hmm. What does the collective say right now? So you've got, I think it's Ruan Guapa doing the documenta. You must go to that, guys. That's going to be amazing. Well, Project mm. Artworks, who was one of the collectives, are in Documenta. Exactly. Mm. Yes, you're very right. So so as, as a commissioner, you can orchestrate a jury that's going to come up with a great decision. And you can guide the jury as well. So who come up with it, you or the jury? The jury will oh, come up with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The jury. This, this, is what, this is what's so amazing about it. So it's not me saying, oh, Sonia, or this artist, or that artist. Actually, to sit back and actually see what the jury come up with. And then it's the chair's role to then guide the discussion. And the guy, the, that chair is the commissioner for the visual arts. And that's, in our case, is Emma Dexter. My role in it is to have the surround, surround sort of strategy around, okay, what do we want to achieve? What do we need to have in place? How do we mastermind energy? Mm. That's my role. So my role is to mastermind energy. And when you mastermind energy, you create a wave. And that wave was this year so perfect. It was ridiculous. Um, so what sort of things do you do to mastermind energy? Ah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my trade no, secrets. I want to get on your wave. <laughs> you yeah. Go, yeah. Well, we're on the same wavelength today and on this broadcast, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, masterminding energy is about having the team in place for sure. Um, you know, when you look at a great programme, or a great work of art. Actually, the art belongs to many people. It might be the ingenuity of the artist in terms of form, aesthetic, but actually we all own it in the end. I know the economic system, market system doesn't allow that because we legalise it oh. by IP. But actually the actual deeper sense of what it is belongs to the multitude of ecological forces mm. that that surround it swirl around it whirl with it and so it's kind of creating this sufi spin um of energy um so whether it's you know things which are quite technocratic i press relations or stakeholder relations or polit politics or politicians or audiences or communities or, or you know um subject matter that's informing or in the context how do we synchronize, in a sense, using Sonia's idea of frequency? How do you align the frequencies so the sound is, is you know, attuning to the jury, mm. attuning to the public? So the jury who make the decision on Venice look at many factors. Obviously, they're looking at the art. But I always believe, in the back of my head, maybe they're also sensing the energy of the moment kind of a light sort of light-hearted way of kind of capturing the energy was the, our party so we had poppy ajuda we had um architecture music for architecture uh with peter ajay and we had these wonderful audiences in this old monastery mm. um poppy ajuda is one of the performers in yes, so there's, right. there's four black British female singers perform. I oh, know one Swedish. Yeah, that's right. Um, and they're performing in yeah. this, these video works, uh, yes. this installation that is an immersive experience and they're mm. all improvising. And Poppy was one of these that was invited. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Pop Poppy did a performance on the, 
on the on the party night. And you know, the energy was so amazing. We also had a really good sponsorship um package from different Henry yeah. Moore Institute. Ah, yes, We've just been interviewing them recently, and they, <laughs> oh, I know they, they, they yes. gave some money to it. Godfrey, yes, he's great. They continue to support the pavilion. You know, um, Henry Moore obviously won one of the big awards um, back in the day. And also, you know, we try to keep a sculptural element um, going in the pavilion. So oh. there's always a sculptural oh. element, yeah. So you'll see, you'll see the artists always respond with sort of an element of sculpture featuring. Mm-hmm. If you look back at... Yeah, Tracy did them tower structures. Yeah, she did, yeah. Which I don't think she's really done since, but yeah, that was probably. defined by the pavilion probably and probably a sculptural element that was needed. So as a yeah. jury, would they tell the artist that's been chosen, you need to have a sculptural element within this? Well, you'd hope they'd choose an artist who has that leaning already. Well, the, 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 the Some thing... artists might not. Yeah, I guess, yeah. yeah. yeah but, but you're right, because if you're like into sound or yeah. you know, film... I oh, know, but it's true, um, yeah. Steve McQueen's yeah. installation. But the interesting thing about that is when you walked in mm. and sat down in the room, it was really sculptural because he had all the um, soundproofing panels, Right, I think. Mm. I can't quite remember, but I remember it being this really overwhelming sort right. of sensation. As a So maybe that was a sculptural element in that. I guess visually yeah. it was sculptural too. But. So, so people like Henry Moore, Art Fund... But also, you know, the big sponsors like your Burberry's, oh, Burberry wow. Art Group, you know, they all came together. And so you were firing on all cylinders. We were firing. <laughs> oh God, it, it, it was just perfect synchronicity. And this is why that ribbon cutting moment was so overwhelming mm. in terms of the emotion. I had mm. to really control myself, you know, to, to stay together here. Mm. I had to say a few words. And I was, my emotions were going nuts. To let people know who's won before the pavilions are opened? Ah, so, yeah, so the Golden Line decision is on the Friday or is it Saturday? It's Saturday morning. So we don't know. Nobody knows. Not even the person who's win, who wins winning knows in advance. Right. They know as it's as it's announced that they've won. With but a, is the Saturday the day you cut the ribbon? No, we cut the ribbon on Wednesday. Ah, okay, okay, okay. right. Yeah. So it's open for a few days. Public have been in and then the announcement happens. Not, not public. Right. So the pro- Oh, no, it's a press... Press and, pub- and professionals. But by the yeah. time the public go in, it's been announced. It's been announced. Got it. Yeah. So this is why you're running up and down the queue yeah. going, you're in, you're in the hot ticket, yes, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> of course, of course. Trying to build more hype. Yeah. So, so one, one, when I was in Birmingham, one of the big things I did was promote. So I was a promoter as much as a producer, curator. And so my habit is to create hype. So Energy. Energy, yeah. mastermind energy. You know, it's, it's funny a way of putting it, isn't it? I, I feel like that's what we do as gallerists as well. Like, I think that's what I do. What I, you do? And Russell and me, even like doing talk art, it's like, yeah, we sometimes joke that it's like cheerleading. So there is a sense of like amplifying, but also bringing together mm-hmm. different voices, bringing together different energy. I know what you mean. And then that creates a successful opening, which then has repercussions to like get people in because there was an exciting opening, all that kind of stuff. Mm. It's really interesting. It's true. That's what I love about it, actually, so much. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, you, ha- you can have, you can make a change. You can sort of encourage and divert eyes to mm. and amplify and all of oh. those positive things that yeah. you can give culturally. It feels like we're doing this podcast, and obviously in the position you're in now, absolutely, it feels a real privilege to be able to do that, to be a patron for someone. Yes, and it is a it's a patron massive... of energy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly, patron of it. Totally agree with that. I mean, I mean, there's so many strange things happened i mean we bumped into tiny temper 
<laughs> yeah, that was it. That, so, so at the party, somebody whispered in my ear from Thermae Art Group, says, oh, do you want to meet, do you want to meet Tiny? I says, Tiny who? Tiny Temper. I said, yeah, sure. Of course. She says, well, why not? He's, he's great. And I was thinking of all his tracks. Mm. Oh, so that comes to mind. Um, <laughs> I think I've been in that moment. We had a glass or two passing out. Yeah. Um, waking up. And, such uh, a good record. Yeah, I want him on the show, actually. I love Tiny Temper. Well, we know, he I loves know, art. I know him quite well right now. Oh, cool. And so so went to this this really extraordinary lunch. It was so impossible to find the venue. And it was really super secretive. So secretive. It had gates. And they asked for my COVID pass. Of course, I had it on me, but hadn't realised it, hadn't updated it. And it said November 21 um, expiry date. Um. So they started making a big fuss about it. It says, I'm here to do a speech with Tiny Temper. <laughs> <laughs> Although I hadn't, I wasn't doing any speech. I was just going to have lunch with him. So I made it all kind of sound really important. And the manager got involved and I got through eventually and then... I went through this way, that way, and then I phoned the person who was trying to get me there and says, I'm in Sabod Gupta's installation. And she said, I don't know about Sabod Gupta's installation, but we're here. Anyway, I got there in the end, met Tony Tempeh, looked really, really beautiful with all this wonderful, stylish clothing. I says, well, that's got to be Tiny Tempeh. So I got chatting to him. But the best thing was I got Tiny Tempeh with Thermi to come to the pavilion straight after lunch and meet everyone. So en route... You know, I was like acting like Tiny Temper's agent says, if you want to talk to him, you talk to me first, you know. Um, he's, he's with me, you know. Promoter, yeah. Being the promoter, yeah. yeah. And so I, we bumped into John Ekamfra, smoking dogs en route. And then when we came to the pavilion, Sonia was there. So I've got I've got one of my new friends to meet you. You should have seen her face light oh. up when she saw Tiny Temper. Then we went, to, we did a private tour with him. Well, with the public there. Um, took photographs and it was wonderful. And he kept in touch and he wants to do something really extraordinary. You should definitely get yeah, him here. Cool. Yeah, he, he would love to, to do this this mm -hmm. programme. But yeah, so there was there was moments like that, which were also kind of, you know, moments of destiny of, of, all's, of all us coming together mm. at that moment. I also think, you know, the people like Claudette Johnson were there, Trevor Matheson. Mm. These are like real pioneers in mm. black art movement. Mm. Um, Sapake from Innova. Oh my God, the list goes on mm. and on. And and Simon Lee Gallery put on a beautiful. They represent Sonia. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they got on board during the uh, when she was announced, and they've they've been extraordinary. Great, fantastic what they've been doing. Simon's been amazing, and so he put on a party at the Metropole Hotel, which I know after three drinks cost you like sixty ninety quid because <laughs> I did a round. Oh of God. of three rounds, and I got busted, and there's just two of us. Um, and I thought, God, I wonder what his bill would be. It must mm. be in the thousands. But anyway, he, he put on some drinks afterwards. But the photos we took and the energy in the room. But there was one moment that was really significant, and that was when Claudette Johnson came in. And you know what Sonia did? Because she's more senior than her. She got the golden lion and she gave it to Claudette. Mm. She said, this is yours. This belongs to you. And Claudette Johns accepted it, says, I accept. Oh. He says, but I want to give it back to you. <laughs> and it was a beautiful, That's gorgeous so moment. And, oh, my God, emotional. Sonia was so, so moved by it. We were all moved by it. Mm. It's like another one of those moments. But what the great thing about this Venice was that, you know, we always had a new generation in, in the room. So oh, I have to mention Alberta Whittle. Yes, I love Alberta. Oh, Thomas J. Price was there as well. Jonas 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. There, there, everybody was gathering. Yeah, everybody was gathering. It was, it was so... I just spent the last weekend with Alberta in yeah, Edinburgh, love. and I oh. absolutely love her. Her work's so extraordinary. And do you know what was the amazing thing? The coincidence of it all and the destiny, perhaps, is that she's in the same pavilion when I did Duck Fishburne's Leisureland Golf. Oh right. And I, I, I feel like maybe we blessed the space yeah, for yeah. her because she did a good show, and it was it was really heart wrenching the work, and but also gorgeous. And so, so to have somebody as gorgeous as Alberta in her thinking and her work and her energy um, in that moment, and, you know, I had old friends like, I have a good friend called Carlo Hiri. He's the tallest man in the art, six foot eight. <laughs> Everybody sees he's Nigerian. So he really stands out. And he said to me, he says, I just love Sonia's generosity mm. because she made me pick up the, the golden line. She didn't hide it. She didn't make it exclusive because mm -mm. you know when you win an award like that it's like is it going to be like Gollum and the golden ring <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my precious she was not like that at all she oh. let everybody touch it hold it so and experience cool. it um and it was it was one of the defining moments that made me realize the power of art power of you know um recognition you know all of that but also community you know and history and that when History is realising kind of the contemporary future in the moment you're in. That's quite extraordinary, isn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, that's such a magical moment. So Venice has that power. You know, and sometimes people ask, oh, why do you do Venice and cost so much and that? Well, actually, the, the impact of it is so big. Mm. Um, and, it, and the impact will be seen for years and years to come. Yes, you know, for new generations. Do you, know, yeah, yeah. do you know who the next artist is? Can you tell us? <laughs> Not yet. Are no. you looking through? <laughs> we're we're going to get a jury together. Oh, yeah, lovely. Yeah, well, love I guess a, I guess the next the next one will voices? be the <laughs> I guess the next one will be the architecture. Well, um, we've we've got a curatorial team who are now working with some artist ideas. The the team that we've got together are are extraordinary. They're right. they're young kids, and you know they they came over, and I gave them special privilege to be part of our moment. Mm in Venice to experience the power of this moment. And they were so inspired. Um, they got to meet some really, really important people. They got to meet Sonia, obviously. Got to meet Tiny Temper. Um, who, who are these people? They're the ones who are they're doing They're the curators. Oh, OK. Yeah, I'll, I'll have, give you, you... have you selected the architecture one, then? No, only the curators. Ah. Oh. There's four of them. Yeah. So, yes. before we get into final questions, just uh, want to talk about the British Council art collection that has mm. been building since 1938. There's over 8,500 artworks in the collection now. It doesn't have uh, a structure. It's been referred to as the museum without walls. Mm. And these works are loaned, some kind of permanently, some temporary to museums, institutions, exhibitions all around the world and domestically to show the best of British art. Mm. Um, what is it like being the head of that? And also, I am yeah. currently trying to loan a work uh, okay. by Julian Ayres from the collection for a group show that's coming up at the end of the year. Brilliant. And it's very tricky. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because we have to have uh, humidified readings. We have to have certain security in place. There's, I mean, obviously, it protects the yes. artwork. Um, but it's, it's, it's a process. Oh, we would. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can help. Well, <laughs> put we'll, in a good word. No, I will put in a good word. Of course, I will. Um, th the issue with any artwork um, is the deal you've got with the artist. So, 
of those works of art, I think we've got about 9,800 now. Oh, it's gone up, right? Yeah, it's gone up. Um, Since we've sat here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like share prices going up. <laughs> um, no, it, it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, it depends on the artwork, obviously. You know, it, it, it needs to have certain conditions for it to be preserved. Yeah, yeah. You know the deal. Um, and the processes of borrowing works from the collection and just working with the British Council can be quite complex. There's no doubt about it. And you have to be quite resilient in order to get through that bit. But once you got through that bit, um, it's almost it's, it's the storm before the calm. It's not the other way around. So you, you just got to get through that process. But it's there to protect the work, as you know. But yeah, I'll put in good work. I mean, 9,800 works. We're looking to move the collection to a place in Coventry as part of the legacy of the City of Culture, the old IKEA building, which is massive, and we'll do it with Arts Council's collection as well. Oh, great. Brilliant. Yeah. So we there will... is a tiny bit of rivalry there, isn't there? <laughs> well, there's and a... the government art collection. It's oh, yeah, like, well, yeah. the government art collection will stay where it is. Right. But in a secret location in London, mm -hmm. and how ours will go. They to... sometimes show their collection as well, don't they? In a little, yeah. little tiny gallery. Yeah, yeah. I think they they do a public display. I mean, all, all our works are moving around all the time, you know, internationally and domestically, you know. And is the hope for a permanent space like it is the museum about walls? But is there a hope for a museum with walls? Was that what Coventry Council? Is that what the IKEA is going to be? Not really. No. Right. I mean, it'll have a place in which um, there'll be possibly temporary exhibition spaces, but not significantly. Not like, you know, that the Tate has a dedicated level for its collection, right. you know, modern and Britain. We won't have that. Um, and the theory of our collection is that it's travelling um, and it's travelling abroad. Yeah. So it doesn't need a space in the UK in that sense. However... Maybe we need to have a think about that, actually. Yeah. You know, Robert, I think it's a really good idea to to actually have a space in which... The be curated, British... maybe, rather yeah. than showing the whole collection. You have a collection available and then someone comes in and curates works from the collection mm. along a theme. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the theories being in Coventry is that we'll work with the Herbert for that. Great, love yeah. Herbert. So, yeah, so Herbert's gorgeous So space. they might have, every year, they might have a British Council exactly. show. Great. Yeah, that's very cool. Love. Yeah, or, or do a biannual of sorts, mm. or a triannual, yes. whatever it is. Mm. They are really supportive of working with us and working with Arts Council collections as well. So a combination of factors curated mm. and then looking at the kind of energy of um, the, you know, the energy of the city and the artists of the Midlands area. So mm. that belt is really powerful right now. When you've got, you've got a lot of active spaces you know, academically as well as cultural spaces that could come together mm. to really work with the collection in that location and really keep the legacy of the City of Culture going as well. Well, yeah, because it won the City of Culture last year and the Herbert was obviously where the Turner Prize exhibition was held and it's a beautiful yeah. institution. I love it's it. right next to the Cathedral, Coventry Cathedral. It's stunning. gorgeous. Stunning location. In fact, Nitin Sawney just did um, a wonderful show there as part of City in of Culture. In the Cathedral? Yeah. Wow. And they used the old cathedral to to finish with a beautiful choir oh. and they were looking at the kind of memory of World War II yeah. and paying homage to all the people who died. Yeah, Coventry so got decimated. God, didn't it? smashed a bit. Yeah. Um, so that's where the new cathedral came. So Nitin's project was very much around that. It was so, so, so gorgeous. I mean, the City of Culture, they've done a great job and, you know, I think Shanine and Martin, who run it, 
have all been both been given awards by the Queen's in the oh. birthday honours as well. So it's really nice for them. That's brilliant. Yeah. Oh. They deserve it. So we ask every guest a number of questions. Okay. The first question is, if you could do an imaginary art heist, which is quite apt, thinking about your, your British Council collection. Um, oh, right. But if you could do an imaginary art heist, what artwork you might take home? And it's all legal. We will help you and uh, talk art makes it valid. <laughs> Even oh, though it's obviously not good to steal. <laughs> yes, well, the idea of a heist and robbery and kind of hijack sounds terrible for my karma <laughs> and drama. So, yeah, so I wouldn't want to go down that route. Mm. But if I did have an inside track, I'd go to my friend Alex and say, you're in on this, mate, and you guys as well. Yeah. At the Tate? Yeah, yeah Tate, Tate Britain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and probably go for... I don't know, the 400 sketchbooks of Turner. I think that would be really interesting. Oh, wow. Because... Are they part of the Tate collection? Yeah. Yeah, right. But not many people know about it. But it's the kind of initial thinking of an artist that leads to masterpieces. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, those would be really in, in, incredible. Because that, that energy um, and experiencing the real text is kind of... It's almost kind of the living soul of the artist mm. in your hand. I think that's a gorgeous thought. Yeah, definitely. If I were to look at the kind of modernity, there was a work I came across uh, recently and it was called Starry-Eyed Subspecies by Rajni Pereira. Mm. And it's um, this gorgeous horse which has six eyes. And the idea of this subspecies is the creation of something new on a new planet using these kind of sort of future gods in a way that are so, so sort of cultural futurisms of sorts. And the costumes are designed by this incredible artist from Toronto called Nep City. I think a combination of that um, with, the, with the sketchbooks would be sort of complementary of history and, and, and a future that takes the human sort of psychology and thinking into a multidimensional and different kind of planetary thought in terms of who we are and a relationship with nature, human, non-human at the same time. So I think that's the kind of heist I would look well, at. Well, that is the most curated heist ever because that's like <laughs> bringing two things together to bring about new meaning. I'm loving that. It actually sums up you, actually, in many ways in a very simple description. I'd like to see a turner, turner next to a six-eyed horse. Yeah. I think that, that <laughs> that's, what, that's what the world's been waiting for. curatorial choice. That's uh, very forward-thinking. Loving definitely. this. On a different planet. On a different, on <laughs> on a different, a different planet, planet. Absolutely. yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what is your favourite colour? Wow. That depends on context. I mean, I like different shades of blue, for sure. Mm -hmm. I like the power of red. After the golden line win, I'm sold on gold. Yeah. Especially that type of gold that Sonia created. <laughs> is it actually gold or is it? It's a it's kind of a fool's gold. It's kind of pyrite. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um and I love platinum as a colour. So if if I was to look out ahead of me, I would love to see that golden sky with maybe a platinum sea with shades of red and blue. Wow. This is the other planet. This the, is the planet. It's complex yes. as well. Loving this. <laughs> That's a brilliant answer. 
And this planet's got its own art collection, <laughs> its own council, and yeah. And, and not only that, it has talk art on there. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, I love that. You've got through. Tinder. Um, and what's the best advice you've ever received in terms of your career or that you might offer to others as well? The best advice was from an astrophysicist um, named Ranjit Sondi, um, who's an absolute genius. Um, he came over at the age of 12, was brought up in an English family, and um, he got first in astrophysics. And, you know, he's... Basic, basic stuff. <laughs> basic stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said to me, to be, to be a great leader, you must learn to follow first. And also to be, most of the time, silent in your leadership and remove your ego and let others rise before you. That was what he told me. And I tried Why to haven't it. you followed that? <laughs> <laughs> You're all about ego. I know, yeah. it's such a self-promotion. Self <laughs> well, you know, it's very hard to do that. It is hard because as a leader, you need to have profile. You need to push. The, you need, you're always on Instagram and doing this, that and the other. Yeah. Why are you doing it? Um, you're doing it because you're trying to position certain narratives. But the one thing I, I do try and do is actually look at the idea of new generation and genuine truths in the next decade. So mm. we need a new generation with intergenerational wisdoms with the astrophysicists, but with the kind of exploration of genuine truths. But some of them obviously are imagined and creative that then lead you to uh, a new way of thinking and defining a new language that really matters today. And you, being a gallerist, mm. will love, love that idea of you know, the language that you're trying to create in the space that you provide. So, I mean, it's very hard to follow that advice, but I've tried to do it. And, you know, as a leader, you're expected to lead, not follow. Mm. And if you start following something, they say, well, I thought you were in charge, you know. So it's, it's, it's understanding when it really applies. But It's cherry picking from that advice, isn't it? Yeah. What, what actually you can do yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. moment. It's great advice, though, because it's oh, yeah. very, um, it, it sparks so many thoughts yeah. from it. You know what I mean? Like it's... But you, know, but you know, the other thing about the advice is that that's just the one-line mantra. When you dig deeper into what someone like Ranjit says, I think is it starts to unravel the encyclopedia of that kind of infinite mind mm. um, that's unsettled. And that's the bit we have to negotiate in the mm. end. You know, and so as a leader, you're, you know, you're always... This complex continuum of demand, strategy, expectation, and you're never quite in one place long enough. So that's why, you know, enabling others is so important. You mm. know, so the idea of fertile soil, you know, lit literally and, you know, for our, you know, nutrition, but also in, in terms of the metaphor, you know, when we need that fertile soil, that's going to really you know, grow the new generation mm. that's going to be the collaborative conscious citizen that's g going to make make this world, you know, what it needs to be, mm. this wonderful planet that we have. Well, no, no, you're a wonderful planet. <laughs> <laughs> this has been amazing. Do you have a nickname? Do people call you Skin for short? Skins. 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 Yeah. Love. Thank you, oh. Skins, for joining yeah. us today. This has wonderful. just been, it has been absolutely wonderful. It's been 
Educative. Educative. It's got a rhythm edu- to it. Sounds like a tabla ball. Tabla, yes. Tabla. Educative. Edu- how do you say it's been edu- I've been educated, but how do you say that the whole session's been? I don't know. But... Educational? Educational. Thank you. It's been educational and fun and fascinating and all of those wonderful things. Thank you so much, Skins. My pleasure. Um, for everybody listening, please go to at TalkArt for images of the works we've been talking about. Please go to British Council. Do they have an Instagram feed? We do. British Arts. British Arts. And obviously the website. And the website is uh, BritishCouncil.org. And if you look up, um, even on Google, if you, if you look up um, British Council and Arts, it'll actually bring up a whole yeah. section of the website dedicated to the arts. And it's really, really brilliant. And you Your, can also look up the British Council collection. They have like a search engine and you yes. can search on it, which I love doing. So, yeah, you can and do that too. And you're on Instagram? I am indeed. What is it? Skinderhundle. There we go. Very easy. Very simple. Very direct. Very yes. Direct. Um, loving that. Well, it's been a joy to spend this time with you. Thank it's you so much. It's been our destiny much. to spend this time it with you. It has been, yeah. And uh, thanks to Caroline Meeby as well for suggesting it yeah, because, uh, yeah, she's a big fan of Respect. yours. I'm a big fan of hers. And um, thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon. Thanks, Bye. 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 Cheers. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.